You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey friends, glad to have you on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. I hope you have your third cup poured. If you're not a coffee drinker, I guess you can listen. You're not going to remember as much. It's not going to be as fun. But, you know, you're welcome. I mean, certainly wouldn't kick you out. Definitely into my third cup of coffee because that's where the magic happens. And I hope things are going well for you. Beautiful day in Kansas City. I have my task before me. I am going to attempt to clean out our van. And that may not sound like a big deal to you, but if you have a van and children, you understand for whatever reason, when they go to the van, they have superhuman strength and they can carry a backpack, a duffel bag, a satchel, a paper bag, and some books. Like They can carry all this stuff out and three pair of shoes each. But once they get it in the van, the stuff, uh, it takes on supernatural physical characteristics because it weighs so much they are unable to carry it from the van back into the house. That's just how it happens. So they can carry it out to the van, can't carry it back. Heaven only knows what is in the back seat, the very back row of our van. I don't know. It's so far back there. We drive a big white 15-passenger homeschool special, and I just don't go back there because why would you if you didn't have to? But I have to. And so today, that's on my task list to go out there and clean out the van. But it's a beautiful day for it. It has been a beautiful couple of days. We had a great weekend in Kansas City. We had a great weekend with friends. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that, uh, give you more details here in a minute. But we just had a super good time with some friends on Sunday. And this all kind of ties into uh, fasting as a group, fasting together, which is something we don't do quite as much as maybe we should. I read a great book back in the early 2000s, and I've referenced it over and over again. If you know me, uh, you've heard me talk about it before, Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. Putnam lays out the idea that over the past 40 or 50 years, we increasingly do things as individuals rather than groups. And he paints it uh, initially as the idea of bowling. 40s, 50s, 60s, bowling in leagues was a huge thing. Everybody bowled in leagues. If you fast forward to today, just as many people bowl as did back then over the course of a year, but hardly anybody bowls in a league anymore. We're still all bowling at some point. We're just bowling alone. And he uses that idea to illustrate how many things that people do alone that they used to do in groups. And he even touches on spiritual activities. And I think we see that. People tune into a podcast. They listen to their favorite worship artist. But they do these things in solitary. They don't do them together that much. And they surely don't fast together. And so Kelsey and I decided, you know what? We are up for this 40-day fast. We will join with Lou and Therese Engel in this fast and the 60,000 others, but it still feels like you're doing it alone. And I don't want to do it alone. And so we are gathering some friends on uh, Sundays just to get together during the course of this fast, just during this six-week period, and uh, praying for one another and worshiping, talking about what the Lord is showing us, and encouraging one another for this season of fasting. And as I was talking about this a little bit on Twitter, somebody was asking me, what, is, what are the things the Lord is showing you? And I thought, well, you know what? We could just podcast this and kill two birds with one stone. So this morning, I want to revisit what we talked about on Sunday, uh, a short story of how Kelsey and I were drawn into fasting because uh, we ministered for years without ever touching the idea of barely touched prayer and didn't touch fasting with a 10-foot pole. 
Uh, I want to talk about the nature of fasting from the Bible, what we fast for, and then lay out kind of why we do this together. Because fasting is hard, but you don't need to do it alone. So stay tuned, and let's talk about what we covered Sunday with our friends. So it struck me the other day that Kelsey and I are on the cusp of coming full circle in a 20-year cycle. Now, when you're in your 20s or your 30s, you don't recognize these things. But you get a little older, you realize that sometimes life is circular, and the best that you can hope for is to have grown through the last cycle so that when you come around again, you got a little better idea what's going on. And 20 years ago, we were... Uh, on the edge of really a mind-blowing season of life. Some of you kind of know our story, some of you don't, but 20 years ago we were church planting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we had a young church. I was 32, and there was one man in the church older than me. Most everybody was in their mid-20s. And we knew there had to be more than just good church services, but we didn't know a whole lot about prayer, and we really knew nothing about fasting. It was just not ever a part of our, uh, our history up until that point. What we did have was a real sense of holy discontent. Like, we knew that there had to be more. And we entered into a season of prayer and fasting in the summer of 2000 that marked us forever. We did a 40-day fast, and uh, the, we gathered together with a young couple every night to pray. We said, we want to do this together. And you know what we learned the first 21 days of that 40-day fast? Nothing. It was terrible. It was terrible. We would gather together, and we'd worship a little bit, and we'd say, has the Lord told you anything? And we'd look at each other, and no. It was just, we, we had hoped for this massive download from day one, and we didn't get anything. It was dry as a bone. But we kept with it. And on the 21st day, something shifted, and we started to hear from the Lord with unbelievable clarity. Things that we felt were going to happen, vision for the future, uh, encouraging things about other people. We began to get dreams from the Lord, which had really never been a part of our experience. And we're on the 20-year anniversary of that right now, right within these next couple of months. It's been 20 years. When we look back at that season, that was some of the richest time of our lives in ministry. And we really feel that we're coming around to that again. We find ourselves in the same spot, except we're a little older and we are feeling the weight of finding that. It feels a little bit heavier because I understand time in a way that I didn't understand back then. When you're in your 20s and 30s, you think you're going to live forever. And something happens when you get to 50 and you know you're going to live for a while. It's not the end of days, but if la life is a two-lap race, I'm in the second lap. I mean, there is no three f laps of 50 years each. It's not going to happen. So I'm passing things that I'm never going to pass again, in a sense, and I'm looking at them a little differently, and I am hungrier and more discontent uh, with my own depth in the Lord than I ever have been. And that's not a bad thing. That's not admitting defeat. That's admitting hunger. And so we are gathering with some friends on Sundays, and uh, just during this fast, saying, let's be hungry together. What are the things that you're speaking to us, God? And if I'm not hearing, then maybe somebody else is. But by all means, we want to grow as a group. 20 years ago, it was a life changer for us. And I believe it's going to be for a lot of you as well.
couple of things about the nature of this fast. Why are we fasting and what are we fasting for? Let me just give you real, really quickly three things that we are fasting for and how that ties into scripture. We are fasting for internal clarity. And when I say internal clarity, what I mean by that is dealing with our own stuff, our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own attitudes that don't reflect what the Lord is saying. If there's anything that we're bad at, it is identifying our own spiritual shortcomings. We've a really limited ability to see past our own games and judge our own hearts. And even when we do something we know we shouldn't have done, we insist that we meant well, don't we? We meant well. I mean, we just shouldn't have done what we did, but we meant well because we are quick to judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. And because we are so terrible at self-examination, we are great at self-justification. We give ourselves all kinds of grace because we just don't see what we did as wrong, or if it was wrong, it was justified. And because we don't see our own failings, sometimes we live with them a lot longer than we should. And fasting reveals the internal junk that we just don't see in normal life. There's this story told in the book of Joel. And the people in this season of history are in deep sin, and either they don't know or they know and they don't care. And God starts out by telling Joel, what is happening and what is about to happen will be spoken of by your great-grandchildren. He says, I'm going to ring your bell. They're going to tell this story for generations. And we really have no grid for what came upon the people of Israel in that day. The closest thing that we might be able to relate it to in American history would have been the Dust Bowl of the early 1930s, where in the southwestern Kansas and northwestern Oklahoma, there were dust storms that would drop 10 inches of like fine talcum powder dust in an area, and the winds would blow down from Canada, and the dust would just blow everywhere, suffocating animals and killing crops and stranding people because their cars wouldn't navigate in it. Now imagine that kind of filth. Imagine your home right now, 10 inches of dust falling overnight. And then on top of that, military invasion. That's what happened in Job. It was both uh, an agriculture and an economic disaster, followed by a military invasion. And as much as it's easy to write it off as demonic attack, because everything that happens bad to us is demonic, right? It's actually used by God to reveal the sin of Israel to Israel. And God speaks through Joel to reveal the hardship that Israel is undergoing and says it's not for nothing. He's pressing them into a place of being forced to examine themselves. Joel 2, 12-14. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So this fasting in Joel is unto internal examination that helps them see the things within their own heart that displeases God. Things in our own heart that displease God that we may never notice as long as we're medicating ourselves with Chipotle and Netflix. 
Some of the things we do in the course of normal life, we do for enjoyment, but because we do them over and over again, they become a coping mechanism. And fasting, setting those things aside, things that aren't wrong, but they medicate us, they dull our spirits. Setting those things aside allows us to deal with who we are when those coping mechanisms are gone. Fasting answers the question of what our walk with Jesus is like when all of the props are kicked out. When you're hungry, what is inside you comes out. I am fasting in this season because I want those things out of my life as Kelsey and I go into whatever the next season is. I'm fasting for internal clarity. Another thing I'm fasting for, and I think a lot of you are too, is forward movement. Forward movement. What is next? You know, a lot of times uh, people say, what can I pray for you about? And I always think that's kind of the low bar of offering to partner with somebody. Sometimes I'll ask them, well, this is what I want you to pray with me about, but will you fast with me instead? And it's so funny. Lots of people will pray with you. Not many will fast with you. Because to fast for something ups the commitment considerably. I took an informal poll on Instagram last week about what people were willing to fast for. And it was so interesting. One of the most common things that people said, I will fast for that, were next steps in their life. Next steps for my family, open doors, the next season that God has for us. Because we want to move in to whatever he wants to do. And oh, Kelsey and I are totally there. God, what's next? I've been asking that for three months. When Scout was little, I mean, he's little now, he's five, but when he was like three, two and a half, three. There were times you would want him to go do something. And his excuse, as he would grab a hold of like the door frame, he would look at you with a complete blank look on his face and say, I can't, I'm stuck. No, no, you're not, Scout. Come on, let's move. I, I, I'm stuck. I, I can't. No, he wasn't stuck. He just didn't want to do the next thing. Friends, you cannot go forward sometimes because you can't see the way forward or other times just because you're comfortable where you are and you think you're stuck. Fasting unlocks doors that comfort will tell you do not need to be opened. Some of you, up until this fast, you were pretty content. You were stuck, but you didn't mind being stuck. In fact, you chose to be stuck because it was easier than making changes. And now that you're fasting, you're a little bit discontent. And everything that was in you that was telling you it was unnecessary to move is now beginning to be stripped away. And you are recognizing that uh, you're not stuck, you're comfortable. And he wants to move you. Fasting has always been a part of bold change or radical movement for groups of people. In the Old Testament, the bulk of the population at one point was hauled away to Babylon, the bulk of the population of Israel. Certainly the intelligentsia, the scholars, those who would lead the people. And a small contingency stayed back in Jerusalem, which had been burned to the ground and pillaged. It might have been easier to go with the captives than it would have been to stay with the shambles of what was Jerusalem. The captives go to Babylon, and eventually Zerubbabel led a group back from Babylon, funded by the pagan king, to rebuild the temple. But somehow they got bogged down in making life work. You know, they moved back to Jerusalem and everything was wrecked. And they just, 
they had made a tremendous effort or a whole lot of progress. Sometimes the best of intentions get you nowhere. So Ezra, back in Babylon, realized that if the people in Israel were stuck, they had a general idea of what they wanted to do, but it wasn't happening. There's a big gap between realization and execution. Some of you realize what you're supposed to do, but to execute it, to actually rebuild the city, it's not happening. So Ezra went to the king, and he proposed that more people go. He wanted to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, but it was a long way back there, and it would have been much safer to stay in Babylon. Life wasn't bad. In Ezra chapter 8, 21 to 23, it says, Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek him for a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on the way, since I told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. I love this. He says, we're a little scared to make the trip, and I'm afraid to ask the king for help because I just told the king that God was with us. But actually, the king helps them out and provides them with a guard, and they go. But first, they fasted. If you are stuck... If you don't know what is next, let me encourage you. This fast can make a difference. I'm fasting for our family. We're stuck between assignments. I'm fasting for the people who reached out on Instagram and said, I'm stuck. I don't know what's next for my family. But I also know that what he may reveal may be so uncomfortable that we may look back and go, you know, stuck wasn't bad. But we, want, we don't want to do that. We want to press in to the full plan of God for our lives. We fast for internal clarity so our stuff is revealed. We fast for forward movement if we're stuck. Finally, we fast because we want to focus on identity and remember who we are. Now, this group that's gathering, really they're uh, mostly you know not new believers. And, and if you've been listening to this for a while, you're probably not either because I don't know that there's a whole lot interesting for a new believer. Maybe it is. But you would think at our growth point, or where we are in Christ, that we would understand our identity better than we do. But we don't. Historically, people tend to forget who they are and what they are called to. After Zerubbabel and Ezra had made an attempt with very little return of rebuilding the city, Nehemiah the prophet was tasked with rebuilding Jerusalem. He was actually the third wave of rebuilders sent back from Babylon. And surely the third wave would do immediately what their predecessors failed to do. Now, to be fair to Nehemiah, they were very successful in rebuilding. But they struggled with identity because they were constantly distracted by detractors, mostly people of mixed identity. You remember when all of the intelligentsia and all of the leaders and all of the young men of able body were hauled off to Babylon and there were people who were left in Jerusalem? Most of those people intermarried with the local pagan tribes. They lost a little bit of who they were. And so when the Hebrew people came back to rebuild the temple, those people who were left, who you would think would be excited and want to help rebuild, were actually very, very negative. And they pressed back and they didn't want to help rebuild. In fact, they were discouraging. And Nehemiah not only struggled to get the task done, he struggled to help them remember who they were in the process. In Nehemiah 9, 
God declares this pageant of sorts that involves a reinstitution of the reading of God's word. The very thing that made them different was this written covenant that they had from God, and he coupled it with corporate fasting. Nehemiah 9, 1-3, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from the foreigners, separated themselves from those that had uh, mixed with the pagans around them, separated themselves from the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and all the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession, and they worshiped the Lord their God. Some of us have gotten so lost in the task of ministry, of rebuilding, of doing what we were asked to do, that we've forgotten who we are. And as we fast and as we study his word, God is going to awaken our hearts to our identity in Christ. We are going to read his word with tenderness that we might not have had with full stomachs. And we're going to understand what it means that we were set apart, that we were sent to do something special that God has a call on our lives. And who we are before God is actually more important than whatever we think we do for Him. You were not meant to live like the people down the street who live their entire lives for the maintenance of their things. But we can't always tell how much we're becoming like that guy unless we're given the gift of hunger and we train that hunger on the idea of asking God for answers and Him identifying our relationship with us. So I told you a story of how we were drawn into fasting. I talked a little bit about the nature of this fast and what we're fasting for. We are fasting for our identity. We are fasting so we are no longer stuck. We are fasting for internal clarity before the Lord. But why do it together? I mean, why come together and do this with friends? Fasting as a group kind of is an odd thing. Nobody relishes telling stories about how they felt when they were weak. Never mind that we've all been there. Those are not the moments that we want to relive or we want to share with other people. It is fundamentally unnatural to pursue weakness. And it is even more out of the ordinary to pursue it with a group of people. It's just not normal. It's not natural. But we're inviting people into what I really believe is a supernatural season of pursuing weakness before the Lord so that we can hear from Him clearly. We don't like to make ourselves vulnerable in front of other people, let alone choose to do it. But we're going to do this together because throughout history, God has used large and small groups of people banding together in covenantal prayer and fasting to mold circumstances and hearts towards great things. Until people pray and fast together, they can't comprehend what God might do. I mean, Joel said it. He said, hey, if we pray and fast, who knows whether God will turn and relent. The king of Nineveh, when all of Nineveh was in sin, he challenged them to pray and fast. He said, who knows, God may turn his face. So we gather together as a group and we pray and we fast because who knows? Who knows how we might answer those prayers? Even in relatively recent times, groups of people have gathered together to fast and pray because they were out of options. And some of those desperate, intentionally weak groups changed history. 
Henry Venn was an Anglican priest in the south of London in late 1780s, in a little village called Clapham. And Venn started meeting with people in a home for the purposes of prayer and fasting. They kind of became known as the Clapham Saints. That was just the name that other people spoke of them as. Henry Venn was greatly misunderstood when he did this. Stepping away from the established church was considered a radical and out-of-the-ordinary act, and they were very quickly labeled a sect or a split off of the Anglican church, although that wasn't Venn's intention at all. He just wanted a group of people motivated to go somewhere together. The future is always written by people willing to be misunderstood for a noble cause. And his thoughts are really echoed in the words of my friend John Tyson, and I've quoted him a number of times. He says, I don't want to just work with people who believe that I, what I believe. I want to work with people who want what I want. And Venn found a group of people who wanted what he wanted, and they began to pray and fast together. What they wanted together was to see the British Empire reflect a form of godliness that she had walked away from over the years. In their opinion, their Christian empire didn't reflect Christ, and they were willing to pray and fast and sacrifice and believe and work for change. Most people would think nothing would come out of it, just a strange little group meeting in a house praying together. But that group prayed and fasted for decades, And out of that small group, amazing things happened. From that group, five men were elected to parliament. And of those five, none of them ever lost an election. That would be like five guys from your small group being elected to Congress and staying there as long as they wanted. They were divinely planted in seats of authority by God. From the same group in the late 1700s, The business expression of the British Empire was the East India Company. And the members of this little prayer group, the Clapham Group, saw this business as an opportunity to spread the gospel. So in 1813, they convinced Parliament to add a missionary clause to the company's charter, opening a door for corporate-funded missions around the world wherever that company did business. It wasn't all this little group did. The Clapham prayer group, or the Clapham sect, as they were called, was led by a man named William Wilberforce, who after decades of work saw the abolishment of the slave trade and eventually slavery itself come to an end in the British Empire 10 years before Abraham Lincoln had the fortitude to sign the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States. Slavery in the U.S. might have gone on even longer had they not been under pressure from the rest of the world including the British Empire, led by people like this little prayer group. So people praying and fasting together have changed the world when they have tapped into what God is wanting to do. And that's what we're doing. We're just getting together and saying, God, what do you have? Will you tell us a few secrets? Because if you will, we will latch on to them and we will not give up. We're doing this We'd love to do it with you. We encourage you to listen to the podcast. We'll be sharing kind of every week what the Lord is sharing. If you're in the Kansas City area and uh, you'd like to join us to fast and pray, shoot me an email, rbolender, B-O-H-L-E-N-D-E-R at gmail.com. The initial R at the front, I guess I said that backwards. But uh, shoot us an email and uh, 
I would love to kind of share what those meetings look like over these next six weeks. We are believing that God is going to do big things, and we would like to see those done with you. Have a great day. Get out there in the nice sunshine if it's shiny where you are. Get your van cleaned out. Take care. Thank you.